Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, I'm Simon Long, The Economist's finance and economics editor, and you're listening to Money Talks. Coming up on the program, two big US TV producers get together. It's a tough road ahead in the pay TV business, especially in America. Why are economists so interested in human capital? Governments, individuals, and companies have got to be thinking a lot more seriously about lifelong training. And might David Beckham's Miami soccer dream be about to come true? The current site they're building on is the fourth site they've tried to plan a stadium on. The first three were all shot down by local businesses. First... Discovery Communications is buying Scripps Networks for a total of close to $15 billion. So Discovery's eponymous television channel and its others, such as Animal Planet, will share a home with Scripps lifestyle channels, including the Food Network and the Cooking and DIY channels. In an industry facing a serious threat from viewers' changing habits, Discovery is betting on size. Gaddy Epstein, the Economist's media editor, has been glued to this latest TV soap and joins us now from New York. Hello, Simon. How are you doing? Getty, I talked about size, but it sounds a lot of money. But in terms of the industry as a whole, how big a deal is this? No, it's, it's, it's not a significant deal. This is basically two of the um, kind of the smallest, smaller fish in the, in, in the pond uh, teaming up um, because the theory uh, in the business is uh, that you have to be uh, one of the big boys to... Uh, to have leverage with the cable companies, uh, to have leverage with content companies, uh, so that uh, you can survive, um, because it's a tough, a tough road ahead um, in the pay TV business, especially in America. Indeed, one of the pieces of analysis I read was that it was all about getting access to skinny bundles. What's a skinny bundle? Right. So the bundle of pay TV channels is what American subscribers and and a number of subscribers overseas have been getting when they pay for. Uh, a monthly subscription for TV. So you get uh, 180 channels or more uh, for some ridiculous price. In the U.S., it can be more than $100 uh, to get, you know, your ESPN and your Fox um, and all these other channels. The thing about Discovery and Scripps is their channels are much cheaper um, than the than the most popular channels. Uh, and they feel that they have a lot of value uh, because their channels are much cheaper. So if they were to be sold directly, to consumers in a quote-unquote skinny bundle, just their channels, um, it would be you know ten or fifteen dollars a month, maybe cheaper. And that the theory is that a lot of people might might like to have that, might like to have the Discovery Channel, the Oprah Winfrey Network, the Food Channel, HGTV, the Travel Channel, um, at a much lower price. Uh, the trouble with that is it's very hard uh, to sell this kind of product directly to consumers. Uh, they have relied on these cable companies to sell their channels as part of these much larger packages that have the popular channels, and it's done very well for them as a business. Uh, in the U.S., unfortunately, that business is declining for everybody. You make it sound like an industry in serious trouble. What is the way out? 
the skinny bundles is one of the ways that they hope is a way out, and that and and they're hoping that direct consumer uh, selling selling these services and content directly over the internet will be a way out. But it, the economics will not be as strong I mean, as what the American media companies have experienced with the pay TV bundle, which has just been uh, a rising tide lifting all ships for decades. Now, for the last six, seven years, uh, the number of subscribers uh, has dwindled uh, or at least declined. Uh, you know, many of the top line channels, Discovery Channel, Travel Channel, these channels have lost somewhere around 10 million subscribers uh, out of a peak of 100 million. Um, so the trajectory is downward, and they have to come up with other solutions. So that includes trying to sell direct to consumer, but that's a much tougher business. You mentioned at the outset that this, in terms of the industry as a whole, is, is quite a small deal. Might we see big ones? Uh, absolutely. I think there'll be more uh, consolidation on the way. That's what most uh, analysts think. Uh, I also think a lot of channels are going to die, uh, you know, channels that you've never heard of or that you've skipped over on the dial without even knowing it. I mean, Discovery owns a channel called the American Heroes Channel that I was not familiar with uh, until I started reporting this story. Uh, there, so there are too many channels. There will be fewer. That's less money in the pockets of these companies. Uh, the, the other ways they're going to have to grow uh, are international. They're going to have to try. I mean, this is what their story is, that, that they can try and, um, improve the pay TV uh, model internationally, uh, and uh, we'll see how that goes. But in the U.S., uh, it's a it's a pretty dire story. Gaddy Epstein, thank you very much for joining us from New York to tell it. Thank you. Now, in The Economist this week, we have the second in our series on big economic ideas, looking this time at the work of Gary Becker, an American economist famous for developing a theory of human capital. The term refers to the abilities and qualities of people that can help make them productive. It can help answer questions as varied as why do families in rich countries have fewer children? Why should universities charge tuition fees? And so on. Simon Rabinovich, our Asia Economics Editor, is on the line from Shanghai now, and he's written this week's economics brief. And Simon, can I start by, by putting to you, well, actually, Gary Becker didn't come up with the term human capital, did he? Where, where did he get it from? Well, the, the term human capital was first used by uh, Arthur Pigou, a British economist uh, in the 1920s. Um, and the idea that, you know, the abilities and qualities of people that make them productive matter and are important, um, you know, goes much further back all the way to Adam Smith in the 18th century. So it, it's an idea and a concept that had been floating around for centuries before Gary Becker got to it, um, but it had never really been properly developed. Um, and so in the 1950s, uh, he was you know, a newly graduated graduated a PhD, and he was working on a project looking at the correlation between education levels uh, and income levels. And it was at that time that he realized that although this idea was sort of incohate in a lot of economic thought, it had not been properly fleshed out. I can see a slight problem with that in that it, if you look at investment in education, say, as just an investment in human capital, you're somehow assuming that the people investing in it, the students, are entirely rational economic actors. But my experience as a student wasn't quite like that. Lots of people stayed on as students because they couldn't think of what else to do because they liked the lifestyle. <laughs> that, that, that's certainly true. And that, that's something that Becker actually does include in his thinking about human capital. His theory is a very idealized version of uh, the way that people think and approach their decisions. Uh, and so, you know, in deciding about 
what kind of education to get. They look at the possible different income streams that would accrue to them depending on what they study, how much their education is, is going to cost, and on the basis of that, they make their decision. Now, that obviously is a very abstracted uh, version of the way that people actually do approach their education. Uh, people are often quite clueless about what they want to do. Perhaps they like a teacher. Perhaps they like the lifestyle, as you say. But that's actually part of the theory in, in that given that there is this weakness, how can you know the government help to guide people into education? How can people avoid making certain mistakes in terms of uh, underinvesting in their human capital? Education is the most obvious form of investment in human capital, I suppose, but is it the only one? No. So, I mean, human capital generally refers to the abilities of people. So education and knowledge is obviously a very important part of that. Um, but, you know, having healthy workers is crucial as well. So investment in, in medical systems is a part of developing human capital. And there's a lot of soft attributes as well, things like punctuality or a willingness to work. Things like that are are harder to invest in, uh, but you can think of systems that try to inculcate those kinds of values from an early age uh, as being part of, of building up hu human capital. Uh, another key point is that when we think of education, it's not just what people learn in schools, it's also what people learn on the job. And in fact, uh, Becker's early work on human capital was focused much more on on-the-job training than it was on, on schooling in particular. So the, the idea that people invest in human capital and that it's something that's built up, it's not just something that you accrue, you know, between the ages of three and 22 in school. It, it, it is a lifelong thing. And, you know, these are things which, you know, sitting here in 2017, sound exceedingly obvious. Uh, but in the 1950s and 1960s, when Becker was first tackling this topic, big developed public education systems uh, were, were still a relatively new thing, and in fact something that countries had, had almost stumbled on, if you will. Looking forward, though, Simon, what does Becker's work have to say to us today as a way of looking at the problems we face now in employment? After all, we're again in a period of wrenching technological change. A lot of jobs are disappearing. Can he help us cope with this? I mean, to, to a certain extent, he can. And governments, individuals and companies have got to be thinking a lot more seriously about lifelong training. So one of the things that human capital would tell us about, about technological change is that, you know, insofar as we invest in knowledge in school, that knowledge that we are able to develop and acquire uh, is an asset, but it's an asset that is depreciating faster than ever before because of all the new technologies that are emerging. Um, so it used to be that you could invest heavily in your human capital until the age of, say, 25, and you could basically ride on that for decades to come. That clearly is no longer the case. A second point is that, you know, as life expectancies are increasing and career spans are also increasing, the, the corollary is that if you get more education at the age of 40 or 50 or hey even 60 you now have a longer chance more time to actually get a return on your investment because you will be uh, working for longer so these two points help to explain why it does make a lot of sense as i said for governments companies and individuals to think a lot more seriously about ways of getting uh, more advanced training and education more advanced in, in life and in their careers Thank you, Simon Rabinovich, for adding to the quality of all our human capital. <laughs> You're very welcome. But what do you think? How should we invest in ourselves? And what should governments be doing to enhance our human capital? Let me know your thoughts. You can tweet us at Economist Radio or email us at radio at Finally, 
David Beckham's hopes of launching his own professional football club in Miami might soon be realised. After facing years of opposition, the former Manchester United and LA Galaxy stars bid for a Major League Soccer franchise is poised to be approved this week. James Tozer writes for our Game Theory sports blog. James, I remember this, it must have been a decade ago that it was announced that David Beckham was going to get his Major League Soccer franchise. What's taken so long? Absolutely. It was in 2007 when he signed for LA Galaxy. He was given a clause in his contract which said that he could buy a franchise uh, in Major League Soccer for $25 million. But it's taken a decade for that to come to any kind of fruition. Most of the opposition has actually been within Miami itself, which is where he's decided to try and uh, introduce his franchise. And most of the opposition has come from local businesses who have been worried about the impact that a new stadium might have uh, on the area around them. Uh, particularly worried about infrastructure. In fact, the, the current site they're building on is the fourth site they've tried to plan a stadium on. The first three were all shot down by local businesses. Now, there's a meeting this week, isn't there, of the Major League? I mean, what, what is expected to happen there? So there's a vote, which is happening on Wednesday, um, at which the other franchise owners in the league, there are currently 22 clubs in the league, will decide whether they want to allow Beckham to purchase a club. In, in fact, what he's doing is he's purchasing a share in the league. It's a very strange arrangement where the league owns all of the clubs and all of the players, and the franchise owners or investors purchase the right to manage a team. So he is essentially bidding $25 million for the right to manage one of those teams. So they will decide whether he has the right to do that. And do we know why David Beckham is so apparently obsessed by this? I mean, he, he's not short of money. He's got millions of other interests around the, around the world. Why, why this pursuit of a ma- Major League Soccer franchise? Well, I think this will be a particularly good return on investment because the franchise fee that he's paying is a knockdown fee. It was $25 million was stipulated in his contract in 2007. These days, uh, the average franchise fee is in the hundreds of millions. So he's got a good bargain ahead of him. The evidence as to whether clubs are beneficial for the local area is is more mixed and and the extent to which they bring in revenue. There was quite a good paper published earlier this year about the impact that bringing LeBron James, a star basketball player, to the Miami Heat had on local businesses. There was some sign of an increase of employment and uh, business revenues for businesses that are close to the stadium. Um, So there might be some kind of boost to the local economy. Uh, In terms of the revenues that the the club enjoys, they're fixed. He only gets a, a share of the league revenue. So actually, there's not that much incentive for any given club to excel because they're, they're kind of limited in the amount of money that they can take in. And one of the problems, isn't it, is that the, the LeBron Jameses of the football world don't go to America. It's still a minor league internationally. Well, they do. But unfortunately, they do when they're very, very old. I mean, there are actually, there are actually a handful of World Cup winners, really exceptional players now playing in America. The, the problem is that they're all 35. Um, and That's very much very, on the way. Well, for for football, well, there are still some um, there are still some kind of creative players who are not at the height of their powers, but still capable of doing, uh, you know, putting in exceptional performances. The problem is, is that if you if you can only sign one or two of these players at the back end of their careers, there's only a limited impact they can have on your team. The MLS has quite a strange salary cap in that there's a fixed cap of I think three or four million on salary per year for the entire squad, with the exception of a couple of players. Um, who they're allowed to pay whatever they want. That's known as the Beckham rule, which was actually introduced for David Beckham in 2007. But that means that the quality of the teams is is such that you can only attract a couple of players. The the calibre is quite low, which means that only the older players at the end of their career want to go there. James Tozer, thank you very much. Thank you. That's all for this episode of Money Talks. To read more about all these stories, check out the forthcoming issue of The Economist or visit our website at economist.com. I'm Simon Long. Thanks for joining us.
in London. This is The Economist. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.